Hey everyone, welcome back to the Waypoint What's the Point podcast. We're back for the year 2022 and we're excited to be with you. Um, honestly, um, one of those, it's, it's been a long time so we kind of missed doing this whole podcast so we're excited about being together. Pastor Danny, Pastor Eric and I are here and we're so excited to be here with all of you. We have a wonderful, one of those uh, hard topic conversations that we're going to have today. But before we get into that, i got to ask a nice icebreaker, kind of softball to throw up to these guys. And that question is this. What is your favorite all-time Disney slash Pixar movie and why? Man, that's that's tough. All-time. I mean, I if I have to go all-time, well, uh, I, I think that it, it'd probably be, it'd probably feel a little bit of a cop-out answer because I'd, I'd just want to say the whole the whole Toy Story uh, like all four of them I mean just as a whole the whole story you know it's all mm-hmm. it's all connected but I think that uh, for me I, I, if I have to pick one um, I think I'll go with Toy Story 3 um, and the reason wow. the reason why I would pick Toy Story 3 is not, not necessarily because it's the best Toy Story. I think Toy Story 2 might actually be the best Toy Story. Wow. Um, I'm picking Toy Story 3 because of the, the nostalgia of it. That uh, Andy, the, the main kid in the movie, is actually a year younger than me. And they, I, I like how they actually follow the, the, the age, the timeline where... Uh, you have like this this ten year gap or whatever it was between the when the second movie came out to when the third movie came out, and so Andy's going off to college. It actually came out the summer after my freshman year of college, and so I'm like, I'm I'm totally tracking with this. They're they're totally making this movie for me for my generation, and I'm, I I appreciate that a lot. Oh, that's awesome. Did you bring toys with you to college? I did not. Okay. No, but I did I did have a, a Buzz Lightyear toy as a kid. Nice. Um, and I wrote my my name on his foot, so I had that going for me. Oh wow! And you have a nice four letter first name. So yeah. You, so it, it can easily plus I've got the I've got the, the Pizza Planet hat, and Pizza Planet is is there's a Pizza Planet truck in almost every single Pixar movie. It makes a, some kind of cameo. So Toy Story. So funny story before I tell my favorite Disney movie while well, keeping you guys in suspense. So when we were living overseas, and then we also lived in Boston, we'd come back to visit family in the summer. And they'd have yard sales in in Georgia where my parents lived. And a lot of the yard sales were just filled with Buzz and Woody toys because kids were getting rid of them. They were about the age. So my kids probably grew up with, I don't know, 15 Buzzes and 15 Woodies. (laughs) And they just thought that you just show up. They're like... That we'd go to the store and be like, oh, we don't need anything here. We'll just wait till we go to Grammy and Granddad's house or Mimi and Papa's house because we can get uh, toys. And they just always assume that you just in the summer you just go any go to their house and you're gonna load up for a dollar. You can get like a Buzz, a Woody, and you know, and a Jesse or something. Uh-huh. So, but now I'm sure a lot of those folks want their toys back, especially after Toy Story four, you know, uh-huh. three and four. But. Yeah, so funny story. My favorite, Disney goes way back, and you know, I'm even from the generation where I watched Disney movies in the cafeteria in school. Uh, they used to run these reels, you know, it'd be like a dollar a family, or I mean, a dollar a person, and we'd buy popcorn and watch like bed knobs and broomsticks, or uh, wow. or uh, Chitty Chitty Apple Dumpling Gang, or Herbie Goes Banana, movie? yeah, Chitty Chitty Bang uh, Gang, all those. That was a good one. Uh, Freaky Friday, yeah. you know, and uh, Parent Trap. Parent Trap is a good one. But I have to say, Pixar did make the best Disney movies. My all-time favorite is Cars. 
Uh, I love the American history in it. I love auto history. I, I think it's very well made. I think uh, it actually came out when Isaac and Maggie were little and Derek joined in the party and it's just, it's just an amazing movie. Uh, so it's my favorite. I also love Toy Story 2 and The Incredibles. I think those are the, those are the big three. I think those are the three best movies that uh, Disney ever made in my humble opinion. But Cars is definitely my favorite and I've seen it probably two or three hundred times growing up you know with the with the oh. kids growing up in our house see i was just I in the back i'll throw up in there up is on on my yeah. top up is excellent up it's is like a very list, yeah sure. it's, it makes you think it makes you sad it makes you happy that it's, might it's be just the a good first movie. movie that made you cry and tear up in the first five minutes i know yeah it was so right? good it's it so makes good. you laugh it makes you cry it's yeah. got everything you want yeah it's very yeah. good so for me um it's tough i'm trying to figure out if i'm a victim of the time where like what's modern and what's new is getting me because Encanto right now is just like mm-hmm. so good to me. <laughs> we I'm don't seeking, talk about Bruno, yeah, man. Come Bruno on, Bruno and pressure like all day, every day now. Uh, my kids want to watch it all the time. So I'm torn between Encanto and Aladdin. Aladdin for me is actually I think that might have been the first movie I actually paid to watch at the movie theater. Wow, I think so. I think I was like. 12 or 11 and before that I never actually paid money to go to a movie theater before I think Aladdin was the first one I ever paid to go watch at the movie theater I mean I definitely have some friends who would say that Jasmine was their first crush as a child oh yeah so. her and Nala what <laughs> <laughs> but one, uh <laughs> one thing I think is funny about Aladdin and Encanto is that both of their songs that are really catchy are very contextual to the actual thing so if you're singing them they're not like songs about life and normal things. They're songs in the context like, like about a genie, carpet ride. yeah, or mm-hmm. about a genie or Prince Ali or something. Yeah. Or we don't talk Bruno. about Bruno, where you know some of the other songs are a little more generic life songs. So there's kids walking like around. Kids are love tonight. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of fun. Oh, that's, yeah. I've never actually thought that before, Danny. <laughs> so yeah, everybody's singing the Bruno song is not really. It's it's in its context. If right. you don't know what the movie's about. You sound very strange singing this song. Or or, talk about Bruno. Yeah, or singing about a genie or something. Yeah, no, I love Encanto because to me it symbolizes, there's so much symbolism and and family loyalty and honor, shame, and um, what a family was built on, but also uh, hiding. And there's just so much psychological depth to it. It's like Inside Out. Mm. There's so much thought put into it. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm. I don't know how Disney does it. Yeah. Yeah, they're just really good at what they do. The. They have the Pixar shorts, and so there's there's the one Pixar short of Inside Out where uh, the the daughter there's a boy that's coming to go on a date with with the daughter in the movie, and so it's just showing like what's going on inside the dad's head, and and then like the mom's head, and all, like mm-hmm. the the kid's head. It's, it's a really funny. I need to watch that. I haven't it's, seen that it's yet. Really funny. I just can picture what's going on in the boy's head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the I actually love those shorts too. There's a short for um, I think it came out related to Moana about a volcano. It's I uh-huh. lava you. Uh-huh. <laughs> One of my favorites. Those are so good. Those are so good. Well, going on, changing topics quite rapidly here. Uh, we're gonna go from the festive conversation, talk about Disney movies, to honestly a hard, hard conversation. This is why I kind of want to put these next to each other because I wanted to go from fun topics to a really difficult topic here. We're preaching through the books of uh, Joshua and Judges in our sermon series right now and coming across some really hard texts. And specifically, the one that we're going to talk about, the very first question that we're going to ask about is this text in Joshua chapter 6 where it talks about the conquest of Jericho and or the destruction of the city of Jericho. And in this, in this text, it literally says, putting to the sword or put to the sword um, or 
uh, the the men, the women, the young and the old, mm-hmm. everything is put to the sword, and they receive the sword. And it's this difficult text that when you think about it, when you process it, that you sit with it, and you're like, how do I handle this text? What do I think about this text? How do I interpret this text? How do I understand this text? How do I process this difficult text of the scripture? We believe in the scripture. We believe in who God is, but how do I correlate this with the rest of what I know about who God is? How does it fit for me? And so I want to ask you guys, how do you handle this text? How do you handle this difficult piece of scripture that I think a lot of people wrestle with? Yeah, this has been hard. And and just a housekeeping note, uh, it's just the three of us because... All three of us have read a lot about Joshua in the past couple, the past two months. Uh, we've been studying it. We've been having our just mind blown as we look at different commentaries and different dig into the historical context and hear how church history has interpreted this text and and just just look at the rich knowledge of how this text fits into the grand narrative and. So, so this sometimes in the podcast, oftentimes we try to bring in some other voices from the congregation, other staff members. Uh, for this one, it's just the three of us because this is just an honest dialogue based on our honest dialogues that we've been having for the past two months uh, together as we are called to preach through this. So, so guys, I'm just letting you know that. That's, that's our starting point, that we are still learning, we are still growing, and we asked you to read the whole Bible in two years, and uh, we're, we knew that when you got to Joshua and when you got to Judges, you'd have a lot of questions, and we knew that we weren't there to answer all of them. We, we told you to check out Study Bibles and Bible Project uh, YouTube videos and other resources, but we're here to walk with you in the journey, but we know it's God's Word, we know it's true, and we know God is good and faithful. So that's that's the starting point. But when I... Go on. And I love that starting point. I just want to say that I'm not asking... Uh, Danny and Eric because we know that they know all the answers we're not professing that we know every single answer we are professing that God has called us and used us and we had the opportunity and the privilege of studying some of this stuff but just like with any experts on any field I feel like the more you know the less you, the more you realize you don't know as much as you thought you did you know, yeah, so, you said that with more questions. Exactly. Yeah, more questions. And so we, we want to humbly say to you guys, and not just a false humility, but in, in all honesty, like we don't know all the answers. We want to share with you some of the knowledge that God's given us and blessed us with, but we're like you. We, we, we ultimately trust and uh, humbly are seeking together. And when Paul summarizes his, the first section of Romans, all he can do is give us a doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is his judgments, his path beyond tracing out. Amen. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's, right. That's our starting point. Paul himself, trying to summarize salvation and, and just kind of God's plan in Romans 1 through 11, has to end with that. He's basically saying, I just told you how it works from... The, the Old Testament to the New Testament in light of the revelation that I've been given through Jesus Christ himself and this new church and this new birth. But that's how Paul has to end it. So that's our posture today, guys. That's our posture as we're digging deep into the things of God and how God works. And we want to represent the text faithfully. But at the same time, you might be have more questions than answers at the end of this. But that's okay. Because if we understood everything about God, you know, I don't think we could live 
as human beings because he's God and he it's his responsibility to to execute justice fully and save people we're a part of that so that's why we want to dig deep into Joshua so just starting off to your original question Lawrence so I think to to really dig into this text you got to look at it from three angles or three lenses if you don't see all three properly it's really hard to figure out what the text how uh, how do we interpret this text as a Christian or if you focus on one too much you might at the expense of the other. And I think the three things are just the original biblical placement of the text, where it's at in, in, you know, in the canon of Scripture. It's right after the Pentateuch. It's the first historical book uh, that's purely historical, where obviously there's historical narrative in uh, Genesis through, through Deuteronomy, but this is the beginning of this historical narrative section, and it it is about what they what we learned about in genesis through deuteronomy so it's 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 the final conclusion of all that god has has led up to that so putting it in its biblical context is the starting point but that's incredibly complicated because most of the themes in joshua are developed really in like leviticus exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy even in genesis too so so it's Danny, i just want to i want to jump in really quick yeah. here too just to to it, um, so you're, you're saying that the, the story of Joshua and, and some of these, like this is this is historical narrative within the biblical storyline. Um, but but when you say that, like should should we approach Joshua in the same way that we would approach any other history book today? Like is is, is it the same in terms of like like everything is is literally this like this happened, then this event happened. These are the details. These are the dates. These are the times. These are the places. This is exactly how it unfolded. Not at all. It's, it's primarily a theological text, a Hebrew theological text, to teach people who God is and what God's doing. At this moment in the text, it is more historical, but even the book itself is not trying to be chronological. It's still theological, just like when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We, we know that there, there are times when it, it's not chronological. Matthew is teaching history and teaching the story of Jesus, but he's also teaching it from a perspective of he's Jewish. He wants Jewish people to understand Jesus. He's not really explaining much to Gentile people like Luke does, uh, and he wants them to see Jesus as Messiah. So, so there, there's a dual purpose, and I would say Joshua contains that dual purpose, but it's also ancient literature. And that makes it even different than Matthew. Matthew's written in Greek, and we have a lot of other we have we have a lot of other Greek texts from that period to kind of compare Matthew to. There's not a ton of other texts to compare ancient Hebrew uh, literature to. And so, so that's what separates it from even stuff you know gr- the Greek New Testament. And that's a great point that you made there, Danny. Because I think the point is we call it historical narrative mm. because it kind of fits upon that role in our minds. You know, it, it does tell a story, it tells a history, right? But it's not at all written in the format that we would think a biography is written in. You know, it's just not early childhood. Uh, you know, education. Yeah. You know, it's not. It's not giving out a format of biography or a, a lesson of a story plan. It's done in ancient history with literary devices that are foreign to us. And all to be completely and honest, it's done almost. This sounds kind of hokey, but it's done as if Disney makes a movie. So Disney made McFarland USA, amazing mm-hmm. movie. I know for a fact you can go on YouTube and read all the different ways Disney changed that to make the movie. Not to say that God changed stuff, but the essence of the movie is still there. The historical elements are still there, but Disney is also trying to make an entertaining movie. 
at the same time. So you have two things going on, the real story and an entertaining movie. What God's doing through the Bible is giving us the real historical story, but not trying to make it, not trying to entertain us, to infuse theology of why, who God is and what he's doing and how that leads to this people that were called by Abraham and, and his covenant. That's mm-hmm. why when it talks about the war, they mention, like Lawrence said in his sermon, the ark 14 times. Mm-hmm. They're, they're conquering the biggest fortified city in the region, something the Egyptians couldn't even conquer. They didn't even bother trying, it seems like, because it's still standing at this point. And all it talks about is the ark of the covenant and the priests and trumpets. Obviously, it's not trying to give us, it's trying to give us specific history of theology of what God's doing, not how they won the battle in military terms. So that's what sets it apart from just like no one thinks a Disney movie is exactly what happened historically. We know that this stuff happened, but the way it's presented to us and how we get it is so that we see the parts of it that the author want, that God use the author to give us so that we can understand what who god is and what he's doing we're, we don't get and actually part of why we're frustrated part of why we're even having this podcast is because we get bits of theology and bits of history but we don't get the full picture of either so it in jo- the joshua text itself so we're digging deep to say okay god why did you give us joshua where does this fit in your grand narrative and what is, what is this pointing to and it's particularly interesting for us because Joshua, it, Jesus has the name Joshua, mm-hmm. the one, the one who you know God saves. And, and I want to make sure that our listeners are understand that Danny's not saying that God's making up a random story or mm-hmm. that God is tell, embellishing the truth here. Mm-hmm. That's not what Danny's saying at all. What, what he's saying is the intentionality of the writer that God is using to write this is to say, he, his intentionality is not to describe historically how did the walls fall down? Was there a violent vibration that shook the walls down? Was there an earthquake? Yeah, was it an earthquake? Was it, was it, earthquake? Was it yeah. wind? Was it, what, did God dissolve the walls? His intentionality is not to, he doesn't care about that. What he cares about is the theology. He cares about, it was the presence of God in the ark. Mm-hmm. That's what matters. So he's not saying that it's, there's a, there's a These are historical focus. facts that yeah. really happened. There really was a Joshua. They really did conquer the city. The wall really did fall. Mm-hmm. But in but, terms of like our own our own definitions for how we would judge what is historical, what is factual versus what is fictional, or what it, what seems to uh, maybe not hold as much weight because of you know if, if some of the details are are embellished or not not exactly as they happen, then we might question whether that really is historical. We would question its historicity, whereas here we're saying that's that's not really like we we should be careful to impose our own. Uh, presuppositions or definitions onto the text and let it stand for what it what it's meant to say right. and how it's how it's trying to convey it and this so, is written as history in its own yeah. way it's just written in history in the style that they ancient near eastern history yeah. is a little bit different from 21st century american history exactly. in terms of how it stylistically how it's written how it functions and the, what's purposes and exactly the hebrew right. bible is different than other ancient near east documents too it has a lot of overlap and a lot of similarities but because it's about the god of covenant it it does separate itself and that's one of the reasons why we one of the one of the things that we see in this passage is how god is different than the other gods so there's biblical then there's the historical context so this is number two this is number two and understanding that and and eric's going to speak into that a little bit as we move on and the third one is the 
in light of Jesus and the new covenant. Like that we're, again, we believe that the Bible is one uh, overall story to tell us who God is. And Joshua is part of that story. It's a very, you know, it's a pivotal point. It's a pivotal moment in the grand narrative of scripture, the grand narrative of what God's doing with his people in the world. And we look at it through the lens of Jesus and we look at it through the lens of the new covenant. So all three of those have to be in play to really get to, to really interpret it and, and, and understand it. So you're saying the lenses are, the way you need to look at, understand this text is the lens of where it fits in the Bible. It's original like biblical, biblical theology, yeah, biblical the, content. In, in the context. Hebrew Old Testament where, yeah. Number two, it's it's kind of cultural, historical, historical context. Yeah, what's going on? What are the, who are the Canaanites? Right. Who, what, how did they think? What were their religions like? What, what were they... What was it like in the desert coming out of Egypt? Right. And then number three, we're looking at it through the lens of this side of the of, of, of the work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, when we have the full revelation of who God is, this side of that, how do we look at it through the lens of that? So those are the three kind of lenses. When we say lenses, the perspectives that we're using to understand and look at this text of Scripture. So, Danny, then if you don't mind, give us a little more. What is it? What is the significance of where it's located in the biblical story, the biblical narrative? Give us the significance of what's happening well, in the in the grand story here. And again, guys, I'm not going to do this justice. Literally, in the last two days, Eric and I have been pouring over just documents, and and you know, it's like that scene where Gandalf like knows about the ring, and he goes to like uh, Gondor, and he's like in the lobby, like mm-hmm. looking at all the books. That was Eric and I and Lawrence yesterday. Like, just kind of like the more you learn about this, the more you realize how interconnected the Pentateuch is. And the, this idea, the, so the, the thing we're talking about, the elephant in the room, is this word that the King James translates the accursed things. Uh, the ESV translates, uh, let me see, I'm looking at the different translations, maybe the things devoted to destruction. The NIV translates it the devoted things. Um, the older translations would say the ban or the things forbidden under the ban or the ban goods or the devoted portion. This is a hard, it's harem in, uh, in Hebrew and it's a hard word to translate. And that's the elephant in the room. Like, does that word mean, are we putting, are we saying that God wanted them to do genocide or ethnic cleansing? Mm-hmm. And I, the short answer is no. That is not even close to what, in its original context, it's nothing like that. It's absolutely nothing like that. But there's also this same idea starts brewing in the Pentateuch. We see as God's telling them what they need to do in the land, even inside their own camp, is they need to begin to set things apart for God. And that includes ridding themselves of these other uh, customs and gods that are around them that are going to keep them from fully being devoted to God. So that's so where it's moving along is we start seeing this, particularly in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, it seems really harsh to read Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy as a modern person. We're like, why would God tell them this? Why would God tell them to do that? But in its original context, to them, we it's a God of justice, a God of uh, who loves his people and is he's creating a people uh, to be set apart and he's creating a community with laws and ways to govern and ways to have you know justice and, and fairness in the society but also ways to be holy because God is holy and the other 
the worship of these other gods around them will keep them from really experiencing God and his holiness. So God is doing something in this word is is which starts we start learning about in 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 the you know exodus and then we finally really understand it in deuteronomy it's it's been coming along god's slowly showing them how to live in this community and this word this devoted to god fully devoted getting rid of the stuff that we don't need so that we can get the god that we do need it's kind of like you know you you got to get rid of you know cancer you got to get rid of all the cancer in your body so that you can be healthy again it's it's kind of an it's like that so that's the premise of what god's asking them to do in joshua he's saying this devoted word it's not thinking about genocide or killing it's it's not even that's not even on the radar because it's also the stuff the people the religion it's it's god asking them to be fully devoted to him and this is how you do it so that's 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 the the framework where we enter into this thing then he promises them land and rest and they're going to get it through trusting him why would god um as we're looking at this idea of 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 set apart and holy you know and this kind of devoted things why did god ask and demand it to be done in jericho in that land Eric, you got any thoughts? I've been talking too much. Yeah, um, well, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts too, Lawrence. But I think uh, I think so. So part of part of what we see going on from from just a biblical standpoint is that uh, when when you go back to Abraham, you, you see that God God is God is setting up Abraham. So God chooses a family. He chooses a person who He's going to make into a family that He's going to make into a nation to be this this uh, nation of, of priests to be to be uh, a light to to the nations. They're they're going to they're going to be a holy nation unto the nations to uh, to demonstrate devoted to, to, to God to, to be devoted to God to show what a holy people is like to attract the the nations right. to God and to be to, a blessing That's to be right. a blessing. So um, so Abraham so God tell, makes this promise to Abraham that that uh, he's going he's going to bless Abraham he's going to bless his name he's going to bless him by by giving him uh, offspring and descendants that that outnumber the stars uh, he's going to give him a land. And he's going to, for those who bless him, God's going to bless those people. And for those who curse him, God is going to curse those people. And again, the word curse has a specific context in the original biblical uh, era. So you, you can't force our modern version of curse, even even with that word. But yeah, go on. Yeah, and so, so uh, what you see unfolding in, in this biblical narrative is God, so God has promised God, God has set this in, in motion of, of how he's going to bring about and, and ultimately all of this is connected to uh, salvation and what, what God is doing to, to bring about a, a, a pure, clean, holy people um, that, that's going to uh, radiate out to the ends of the earth that uh, you're going to have this is how God is working out uh, what you see even in, in towards the beginning of Genesis, this, this promise of, of an offspring that is going to uh, save God's people um, save all the people, and and so God chooses Abram. He calls him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and uh, and so he's to go to this land. He's to, to go off to a place that he does not know. He's to leave his family and all his belongings behind, and he's to, to trust God. He's to live. He's to walk in faith and to live a life of faithfulness and, and trusting that God is who He says He is, and that He's going to fulfill all the promises that God has made. Um, and so, so this land that God promises to Abraham, Abraham doesn't actually see it. He doesn't actually get to, uh, I guess, possess it in his own day. Uh, it's interesting that at the end of Abraham's life, 
he actually uh, he actually buys a piece of the land that is promised to him which is I mean even that in, in the the scope of Joshua is interesting because mm-hmm. if it's if it's Israel's rightful land if it's something that's been taken from them then why is Abraham buying it like God, God is going to establish this he's, he's bringing it about um, because God promised to do it so, so uh, even in, I think in what you're seeing happening what you're seeing unfolded in Joshua is God is is showing that he is going to be uh, faithful to the covenant that he's made to and he's showing his people I mean you know he's bringing them he's brought them out of Egypt uh, they've had this miraculous sal- salvific experience through the, the crossing of the Red Sea uh, they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years uh, in the midst of that God, get, God gives them the law the Ten Commandments all, all these things uh, and, and now he is establishing them he's bringing them into the land uh, crossing the Jordan into Jericho uh, to establish them as, as this is God, this, these are God's people and God's land uh, meant to be under his rule and, and reign. And so, um, so that's, that's part of why you see, that's, that's part of the reason of why Jericho and what, what God is bringing about. Um, yeah, what, yeah, I think it's so amazing to see that this land originally was a land promised to Abraham. You know, 400, actually more than 400 years ago, but 400 years ago they were in slavery before that, the descendants of Abraham and all that stuff. But over, all throughout this time, God still is faithful to keep his promises. And the Israelite people, while being formed into a nation, are now going back into the land that was promised, the land and the rest that was promised to them. You know? And so I think it's just incredible to see that this is not random land. Mm-hmm. This is not just, oh, that looks good over there. This is the promised land. This is land of promise. God is the, God is the keeper of promises. And it's interesting to see how in his power, he's able to say, okay, this is the land that I promised you. And then going into this land, then we want you separate. And this whole idea of separate, uh, as a separate people, is to show God's holiness, mm-hmm. right? And that's, what, that's what holiness really means, right? Being holy is to be set apart. And so we're showing in this kind of this band of devoted things, this, this idea that I want people to know God is holy, Hmm. And we are set apart holy people, not because we're the best people. Israelites failed all over and over again, but because God is a keeper of promises and he chose them. And I think even, so like going back to this idea of the land, like the land, it's like this, this section of the, the Middle East is, is referred to as the Fertile Crescent. It's, it's known as the land flowing with milk and honey. And, and I think that's significant because it's, it's trying to show, uh, e- even from theological terms, that it's, it's a land of abundance, and that in God, like whenever Adam and Eve are removed from from the garden, there's there's fear, there's questions of, well, how how will we survive? What will sustain us? And so you know that that is going to be toil, the work is going to be toilsome, and there's questions about fertility, uh, b- both in the land and of the people, and and are are they going to be able to sustain themselves? Are they going to be able to survive? And there, there's always those questions but here they're being brought into a land that's supposed to be bountiful plentiful abundant which i think is is supposed to say something about the kind of rest that god is promising that that in, in an ultimate sense that we even think look about um about what, what god is bringing about through uh bringing people into his kingdom and, and it's, it's going to be a, a place of, of abundance so in biblical context then we've, we see the israelite people entering into the land that was promised uh, to Abraham as the promised land of rest, you know, this, that was led promise to them. And then you see in this process of going into it, God's calling them similarly uh, as, as they were throughout the Pentateuch to be set apart, 
to be devoted, to be holy people, and do not let anything corrupt or take them away from the set-apartness from God. To create a community of, of, of love and justice and, and holiness and honor to God and where there's forgiveness and there's 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 true justice and, and they're not just a warring state ready to attack the next group and grow and grow and grow. No, God is, is saying, you are going to be in this land and I'm going to sustain you. I'll be your army. I'll mm. be your king. I'll mm. be all these things. And you will begin to be a blessing to the nation. So the, so the question at hand is then, is what they're doing fair? And, it, and it, it, that's the question. Because as, right, as modern readers, we read it and we're like, oh, this looks like genocide or this looks like ethnic cleansing or this looks like just you know, murder yeah just murder or taking over people's land and and the, the answer to this question is not simple the, there's a great book that that we use to research this and the book is called uh, the lost world of the israelite context conquest covenant retribution and the fate of the canaanites and it's i don't know 300 pages and it's 21 uh 21 uh propositions like each pillar builds on the next one it's 21 things saying like well this is true in the original biblical context and then this is true and then this is true and then this is true so that's the scholarly theological work it takes to really look at this as a modern person to dig deep into the three areas that i talked about the biblical the historical the original biblical context, the historical, and then the overall biblical context. So it's it's a it's not so sometimes we oversimplify things and we just say, oh yeah, it's just this, or sometimes we undersimplify this. And like the story of Job, this is one of those moments where Christians have oversimplified it or undersimplified it. And really it's just one of those where we have to take it for what it is we have to admit this is what god is telling them to do just like those hard to read passages in leviticus and deuteronomy which have a lot of parallel to this like god's telling them to do this to the canaanite people but he's also telling them to do this inside the camp it's interesting like pastor lawrence brought up in the sermon that that achan and the only two people we hear about are, are achan and rahab One's in, one's out, one's a Canaanite, one's and and who wasn't devoted and who was devoted, you know. So so there's a lot going on here. So and unfortunately historically this has been used in two ways. One one extreme is to justify war, to justify land takeovers by Christians and others, to say we deserve this land, look, you know, and that's that's wrong. That's not what this passage is about. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's also been watered down to where like, well, you know, it's this and that, and God really didn't know what was going on or whatever. No, it's it's neither of those. It's it's us really like the question of Job, digging deep to say, how can we understand the things of God in his redemptive history, knowing that we didn't live in that time, we 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 get we're looking at it from from far removed from the original context yet at the same time we're looking at it through redemptive history and we do have isaiah and jeremiah and matthew mark luke and john and and the revelation of jesus to help us see it but sometimes i still think there's a danger in in over you know undersimplifying it or over stressing it and we're trying to live in that tension 
And that's good. I think that idea of that living in that tension is so... Obviously, you guys know me. Anytime I use the word tension, I'm a happy man. Mm. So uh, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful way to look at it. Um, so as we're looking at the... the, the just honestly, just scratching the surface of the biblical context. Let's now look into the cultural context, the historic historical context of that lens now. Yeah. So, so I kind of want to, I kind of want to blend the two a little bit. But I think for one, you, you have to. So when when it comes to like making interpretations about this this passage, this text, and even you know, Danny, you brought up, is this is what Israel is doing or what God is doing? Is this fair? Is it right? Is it fair? Is it okay for them? To, to do this, to take the land the way that they're, they're going about doing it. Um, I think that, for one, we, we have to judge what Israel is doing in their own cultural context. We can't, if, if we just approach it from, from imposing our own modern understanding of, of warfare, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't have a very strong, robust understanding of warfare to, to be able to even do that in the first place but I can tell you uh, taking somebody else's land seems wrong you know like that that seems pretty pretty obvious so is is that what they're doing is is what Israel is doing it, it seems like something God, God is asking them to do something that we we as modern readers think should never be done but to their day their context, they obviously don't think that. They obviously aren't. And, and you can actually, if you, if you look at uh, other historical ancient Near Eastern text, you can, you can find similar language for the way that Israel is approaching war and the way they're going about that you, you can find even this idea of, of Karim. Or I don't know how to appropriately say harem? that. Uh, harem? Harem? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just don't want to say harem. But, no. uh, harem? But you can, Something like that. But that's not that's not an idea that is exclusive to Israel. It's not an exclusive to monotheism. You actually see that that practice uh, being carried out by by other nations. I mean, you see that uh, with the Moabites. You see that with the Hittites. Um, and, and so there's there is that element of of other nations are doing this. Other other like tribal. I mean, and like you said earlier, Danny, uh, we have to understand that this is a this is an ancient text. And, and so what, what God is trying to, to do here, again, I think is, is trying to demonstrate that he's, he's a God who's going to be faithful to his covenant and to his covenant people. Um, I, I think there is, and, and honestly, I, a temptation of mine was to try to think of, okay, uh, how can we demonstrate that the Canaanites were deserving of this? Uh, and, and as if to apply some kind of retribution principle. And, and I think that... And that's what a lot of modern theologians have done to kind of help justify it and i do i do think that there is some some semblance uh, there is something present of just evil at play in in like the principalities of the world um and and the leaders that that uh that direct them but and there's a passage in genesis and leviticus that allude to that the canaanites are evil people mm -hmm. but that's not what joshua but that's yeah. not yeah. It's, it, that's it, not what Joshua was highlighting at the moment. Because then you'd as ask like, doing why? It. And I, Lawrence, I think you asked this maybe in our like when we were <laughs> trying to prepare for this. What, well, why not do that to Egypt? Why not do that to Assyria? Why not do that to some like all the other the, evil all these regimes? Other evil. Yeah, yeah. And, and so even even when you look at like retribution principle, the retribution principle at play and explain that just so for um, those who don't know. Yeah. So so like uh, so so what you what you see unfolding is. Uh, you, and you see this in other other passages of the Old Testament, where God God confronts a nation for their evil doing, or they c confronts a people, whatever, and uh, gives them a, a an opportunity to repent, to turn, 
um, or to uh, receive punishment, to, to some some kind of act of, like of in Jonah. retribution of justice. Yeah, you see this in Jonah, where God tells Jonah to go to uh, to the Ninevites and to um, to acknowledge their sin. And Jonah's like, I don't want to do that because you're a God who's merciful, and I don't want you to be merciful to them. <laughs> and so he goes and he he tells them, and you know what? They they repent. They turn. They they uh, sackcloth and ashes. They're they're remorseful and repentant and. God relents, like he he forgives them. He's he's merciful, um, but you don't you don't see any of the, those ideas at play with Canaan and what what you see happening here. That that's not that they're still present in Canaan. You have uh, j- just different cultic. Pra- you have I- idol worship. You have um, you have these child like, sacrifice, child sacrifice, these child cultic prostitution. Se- sexual prostitution. Um, so so there's. There's great wickedness that is present in Canaan. That that's undeniable, um, but God is not trying to show that Canaan needs to be under God's covenant. He's trying to show that Israel is is a part of His covenant. He's trying to show the contrast. And so even even when you're setting up these these different, so uh, I think Pastor Lawrence mentioned in, in his sermon as well about just how there's there's all these different military strategies of the day. Like mil- military warfare is is much more common in the day, and so what is what is different about what what Israel's doing so this is so what we're seeing from a cultural standpoint is that this is a common practice warfare and engaging in warfare is something that uh, is is not unique to Israel but is actually something that is is very much present in in the in the ancient near east at that time but what's different so you, you see like uh, these like suzerain vassal treaties that's usually between a king and and its and his subjects but here you see it between God, whereas all these other nations have gods. So you, you see war in terms of which gods are stronger, mm. or if the gods are angry, then they're going to give you over, they're going to give their subjects over to uh, warring nations. That it's, it's because the gods are angry with me that we're, so that, that's the kind of justification you see, whereas you're saying, no, this God is different. One, he's, he's establishing a relationship with his people that's different. Uh, with other wars, you see it's that the kings, the, the kings, the, the, the gods are trying to assist the kings in, in carrying out these, these plans. So it's really whatever the king wants uh, is determined how you engage in warfare and what you try to take over. But here it's God who's trying to do something very purposeful, and he's, he's actually creating order and, and justice, and, and uh, yeah. he's trying to create a whole A very different society than these warring society, states. Yeah. That as soon as they have the power, they'll immediately conquer the next group and make them all slaves or kill them like right. he's creating something totally different if we could see it in its original context and in this cultural historical context we would see so much mercy so much justice from god even the story of rahab shows god's justice so what i'm hearing is that culturally speaking at the time period we're talking about a, a region rife with a, a tribal uh vassal states if you will mm-hmm. or tribal city states or tribal villages or tribes who are constantly at war with each other mm-hmm. some of them representing a god that they would pr- profess as this is our god we represent this god some of them professing just the power of their city state or their might and they're constantly fighting over this territory fighting over this land but the Israelite nation showed something different, right? If you look at their code of laws in, in, in that they created, contrast that to like the code of Hammurabi or contrast it to other um, religious practices of these other uh, nation states, of Hittites or Amorites or all of these others, they showed room for welcoming the foreigner 
Welcome to Sojourner. Right. Yeah, at the they end of Joshua is the, re- the city of refuge. Yeah, the you city know, of refuge. Like, and Year of Jubilee, forgiving of debts. So you see mercy in mid- the midst of, of this. And that's what, what did Rahab respond to? Rahab responded because she heard of the great deeds that were happening and to the great mercy that was happening. Mm. You know, and so that's what she was responding to. So culturally, in this context, they looked in some ways similar, but they stood out radically, which is very much like the very concept of holiness that kind of set apart that we've been talking about throughout as well. So you're actually seeing some of the effects of what God intends to do with Rahab in that Rahab can compare and contrast and say, our gods aren't like that. Our, our nation isn't like that. We don't, we don't do things like your God does. Your God's different. Mm-hmm. You, you as a people must be different. And justice is actually seen, which is something that we often have struggled with, right? The, the idea of justice. Like, but justice requires a just judge. Mm-hmm. And God is the only just judge who can judge because he's perfect and because he's a definition of what is just and right and, and good. And what's interesting, I've been kind of paying attention to Tim Keller wrote a book and listening to some podcasts on how my, how Americans talk about justice. And it seems like we tend to fall into two camps. One camp is like justice is like the enforcement of laws so that everybody can have like a comfortable life. So if you, and that's literally like the justice department, you know. And then but then there's other this other idea in America that justice is making things equal or equity for everyone. Like like doing things. And what's interesting is both of those themes are in the Bible, but depending on which camp you come from, you might read Joshua. Like some people come to this and like, well God can do whatever he wants. And that's like what Eric's trying to frame what is tell us is that's not what you're not supposed to walk away from the theology of Joshua. God can do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. Like if God wants to tell people to do this, he can. That's not at all what Joshua, what God wants you to walk away from. And then on the flip side, this other side that sees justice as equity, which is also in the Bible, it's biblical justice. Both of these things are included in the overarching theme of biblical justice. But that justice, those people see it, well, obviously the the God that I know couldn't let this happen, so it's like a it's an error in recording, or there's some kind of mistake, or God changed. They they try to defend God and say, well, he didn't really mean that. Where what Eric's trying to frame, I think, and what all three of us are is is that really, if you if you dig deep into the original context, you're going to see a God of justice, but you're also going to see a God of mercy. But more importantly, you're going to see a God who who's faithful to his promises because. These warring states are need God. <laughs> they need the Creator to create a presence and go out and spread His good news to to His world. And the promise to Abraham is now being fulfilled over four hundred years later through this. And and it'll continue. The the it, who becomes the agent of the ban and the the, the gets is the Israelites themselves. You know, they're the ones who end up, everything that happens to the Canaanites, God allows to happen to them as Jerusalem is sacked. But and in that, Jer- Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos and, and, you know, all the prophets are pointing us, Malachi, to the new Joshua, to the new David, to the new Moses, to the one who can make, the perfect Israelite, who can make all this right. And so, so that's what we're trying to help you guys see is it, is not that you have to be a Bible scholar, but if you, the deeper you dig into this, the more you're going to really see the mercy of the love and the love of God. But also, you don't have to defend God, and you don't have to say, "Well, God can just do whatever He wants." You can look at this, this for what it is in the Bible, and say, 
it it's hard sometimes to get like Job, but I, I can trust God. And that brings us to this third point. Well, and I was going to say this. Now that's the third point. That's the third lens that we need to understand as we enter into how do we evaluate the scriptures. We see it in the light of the whole meta narrative of God's story, his redemptive plan. You know, and I love how the the symbolism of the trumpets blowing is echoed again. Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. If you see the Book of Revelation, the trumpets blowing and then the earthquakes happening, judgment coming. This theme of judgment exists. I heard the other day somebody said, "Well, God is love. That's what He is," and we say that all the time, don't we? God is love. Well, God is a lot of things, <laughs> right? God is not just love. He is love, but He's also truth. He's also beauty. He's also justice. He's he's a lot of things. He's creator, you know. And I think we have a we pigeonhole God so often in the way we understand God ourselves and our own limited issues with them. So I think even when we look at scripture, we need to look at it in light of the whole meta narrative of the Bible. So how do we do that? How do we approach the scripture in light of the whole meta narrative? I'm going to share a little bit of this in my sermon this coming Sunday, so you guys can you know when we talk about the possessing of the land. So that I'm going to try to help even expound on the idea of the land i didn't talk much about that today so so be looking forward to that that's a teaser for the sermon yeah uh but i i think we look at jesus i think matthew is a beautiful example but we can go to the prophets we don't even have to wait for matthew we can look at god's faithfulness we can look at isaiah and just you know like is is the god who destroys the uh the the weapons of war and turns them into plowshares that's the goal that's the grand vision of isaiah in the new jerusalem right you know that like isaiah is not saying let's reconquer everything let's become greater than the the babylonian empire or the assyrian empire he's saying no let's go back to this humility that we should have had that that they never got with joshua so i, so I think that's where we start and then we look at matthew matthew highlights that rahab is the descendant of jesus matthew highlights Tamar, Matthew highlights Ruth, and he highlights Bathsheba, all Canaanite women. You know, Matthew, and then Matthew says, Jesus leaves the region only twice. He leaves it to go to Egypt when he has to flee Herod, like a reverse of what the Pharaoh did. Now the Jewish king is killing the boys. Then Matthew goes out of his way to say that Jesus leaves the region, barely leaves it, and he meets a Canaanite woman. That's right. Like uh, Matthew goes, talks about it. The last thing Jesus does before he enters the city is goes to Jericho and heals people. God, God is renewing in Jesus. Like you can just read the gospel of Matthew and just see all the curses. All of it is fulfilled. Everything that's promised in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that's so hard for us to get. When, when it's finally fulfilled, when the true Israelite, when the true Joshua, the better Joshua, the better Moses, the better David comes, all of it happens just by reading Matthew. So that's, that's where I get my encouragement. That's where I get my hope. I'm like, God redeemed Jericho. God redeemed the Canaanites. <laughs> like in Matthew, Jesus came not just for them to, like, to, to set us free, and we get to see that unfold in, in Jesus. And I think if if God really wanted Israel to to commit genocide. Like, if he's really just trying to do ethnic cleansing to wipe out these people, like Israel didn't do very good at doing that. Because I mean, you even see in in the text in Joshua that there are these other peoples where that so so like that that are preserved that become a part of the community. So so it can't be that uh, this idea is is just yeah. Every it, Hittite like it, was supposed to be killed because 
Yeah, like so they it, couldn't it, be. It can't. Yeah. It can't. The, the essence of it can't be extermination. Like that's not what God's true. It's. It's. It has something to do with this idea of like banning, separating holiness. And I think like when it comes to looking at the the whole the whole biblical story and, and trying to connect the dots and thinking about what because because God is not asking us to do this today. Like we're not being asked to participate in the same way. Um, but we do have we do have the new Joshua in Jesus. Jesus is the new Joshua who's leading, and, and we're, we're uh, tasked with kingdom. trusting that he's yeah. gonna, he's bringing in he's bringing us into the, the kingdom. It's, it's by the way new of Jesus kind of, that, that we with just his justice. But I think that uh, how do we know? How do we know that? How do we? How can we say that, that uh, God's not calling us to do that today? Like what? What makes us say able to say that? I think the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Like, if I came out to you and I'm like, hey, I had a vision. God spoke to me. He told me to do something like this. Commit Jericho. I, I, he told me to go conquer the city of, I don't know, Singapore. I don't know. Just made up a city. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. What's how, how can we confidently, from the biblical narrative, from what we know about God, how can we confidently say that's not what he's doing? I mean, just even in the narrative itself, first of all, like Eric says, like the Gibeonites, he doesn't you know make them conquer them rahab is spared hittites are one of the groups that's supposed to be completely eliminated who's the guy who's righteous in the david bathsheba story uriah the hittite the hittite the canaanite and meaning bathsheba's probably a hittite also she's definitely canaanite she's not jewish uh he it looks righteous and david the man God's own heart doesn't so so even in the narrative itself like the idea of the band they don't go beyond the land they don't conquer everything they're supposed to just stay in the land and be God's people and he's going to fight their battles for them it, it, going into judges and in the kings all the battles that they win God's like hey your army's too big let me let me shed some guys from your army you can't because you're going to think you did it right versus I did it so I would say that shows up over and over and over again in the scriptures you have to want it to be a war text to make that the scriptures and then Isaiah and just the prophets and then the Sermon on the Mount Paul Romans 12 how he ends Romans 12 leading into Romans 13 there's so much that says that yeah, like God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and we're going to conquer that through following Jesus, our King, fighting the spiritual battle. I mean, I think I think if you look at the testimony of the New Testament too, and, and just the, the 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 Gospels and the stories, the stories about Jesus, where ultimately what what God is waging war against, Jesus is dealing with at the cross, mm. and we have we have to go to the cross and look at it from yes. from the the vantage point yeah. of the cross. That, That's exactly right. The Jesus, I mean, the, the Jewish people thought that oh, G- Jesus or at least the Messiah is coming to uh, to overthrow our oppressor. He's he's going to do what David did, or he's going to he's going to do what we saw uh, Moses doing and bring us out. He's, there's there's going to be this this rescue. And, and James and, and John really thought he was going to be a. F- a military, like a military, leader. a military yeah. king, uh, but but what you see is is uh, see you have Jesus riding in uh, the, the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Where does he go to fight to wage war? He goes he goes to the temple. That's that's where fights so, the Pharisees. So he's yeah. going to he's going to wage war against sin and death, mm-hmm. and and that's ultimately where you see him at the end of the week. And and so I think you know the, this kind of warlike language you even see like in in Ephesians where it's it's talking about putting on the armor of God. It's it's this priestly language where where uh, we we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we, we fight against the the principalities and the, the the prince of darkness in this world. And, and it's because Jesus has already fought that battle. He, he's the premise of the whole arc. 
and God fights the battle, the presence. It's not us that's supposed to fight. God, and that ultimately what happened. Jesus fought the battle. His presence is what fought the battle, and so he fought the battle on the cross. And so we're called conquerors. We're called overcomers right. because of because of Jesus' victory. Not not because we need to wage war on on other people and nations, but because Jesus waged war on sin and death, and and He's given us the victory in that, and that yeah. that we can we can see that realized in our in our own day. Um, and, and so I think too, it, it comes back to this idea of in Joshua, you see also that God is is very much concerned with, I mean syncretism this israel adopting these these other practices from from neighboring nations that are, are going to uh ultimately destroy lead, them lead them, into, them, lead them cause, into yeah yeah just away from being who god has called them to be as, as his holy people and and so i think today you know we can even as as god's people as we embrace the gospel in our lives as we we want to see the gospel uh permeate all of all of life it's it's something that uh we we never graduate from understanding the gospel in our lives and and letting that sink down deep in terms of uh leading us into repentance and gratitude for who god is and what he's done and what he's accomplished and what he continued for him to gain ground in our lives but you can you can easily lead into either legalism or licentiousness we say like legalism okay i have to follow all these rules i have to obey all these commands i have to do all these things so that god will be pleased with me so i can be holy or licentiousness no i'm free in christ so i can do whatever i want whenever i want and god doesn't care and i think both both of those those practices are, are missing the mark of, of the kind of freedom uh this like pursuit of holiness that, that god has called us to that um, I think that that uh, allure to syncretism is still something you know. Yeah. M- maybe it man- manifests itself differently in our day, but I think that's still something that plagues God's people. That, but but God's God's going to win the victory over that. Right. He's going to preserve us. And I think what's beautiful if you think about what is God doing in, in in the Old Testament by setting His people apart by doing these ceremonial laws of cleansing and having them set apart is that you're putting on a type of holiness. Mm-hmm. You know. Ultimately, what Jesus does on the cross is he gives us that holiness that they were putting on, right? Mm-hmm. And so we now have the holiness, right? When the difference, the difference between is are we walking in that holiness or are we following the secretism, you know? There's a difference there. But the us between us and the Israelites there back then is that they're being set apart by putting on this holiness. We have this holiness. We are set apart. And they're in the camp, and in the center of the camp is the tabernacle, and in the center of the tabernacle is a box, and in the box is the presence of God, the Spirit of God. And when Jesus dies, the curtain is torn into two. And when Pentecost happens, the Spirit calls out. And Paul literally says, this is a provocative statement. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Like We're the Ark of the Covenant. Like, literally, we are the place where the Spirit dwells. We mm-hmm. can be holy. We can make right decisions because of the finished work on the cross and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. Like, we have the presence of God. We have the power of God. We have this. So so when we look at Joshua, we see, wow, God was doing something in history to get us to this point. And that's how we got to see it. And like Job, yeah, we're, it's going to be hard to get the exact answers, but we can, we can trust him. And I would say even this idea of, of holiness that... Uh, that so, so when it we we are actually we actually experience a death in our own lives that that we're actually uh, the, the New Testament Paul talks about it as as you put to death the old self you renewed you renew your mind through the power of the Spirit and you put on the new self in Christ and you you live you live in light of that 
So, so what I'm hearing then is, in light of the three lenses of the the biblical context as we interpret the scripture, uh, the cultural context, and the the narrative of the whole grand narrative of scripture, this side of the cross, right? Where we, we the way we understand the scriptures, they say yes, it is still difficult. You know, but we approach it and understand that this is not a, a a conquest. This is not an expansion. This is not a holy war. This is not something that God called people, all of us, to do over and over again. This is a, a unique situation at a unique time that we don't fully understand the depths of it. But we do know God is set apart. He's created this idea of devoted things. We know that he's a righteous judge. We know that he's accomplishing his great work, that he's even redeeming fallen people ultimately. And we also know that ultimately he does, he is the righteous judge that will judge in in, in a somewhat similar manner at the end of time. And so we face all this with, uh, with this lens and we come to this conclusion that even though it's difficult, this is where we're at. Yeah, I want to end with this. I didn't know how to end this. I was going to end reading Romans 12 into 13, where we see Paul's commentary on the Sermon of the Mount leading into governments. Paul starts with this beautiful commentary on like loving your enemies and leaving room for God's wrath, which is actually a quote from Deuteronomy from the Song of Moses. And then he says, but God has to have governments to execute justice on earth, even though it's imperfect. But I want to end with this. This is this is in uh, Mark 10. It says, then they came to Jericho as Jesus, uh, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped on his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Jesus is redeeming Jericho. Jesus is redeeming his people. This is the God of Bible. Right after this, Jesus enters Jerusalem as the humble king on a donkey this that's the lord that's our savior if you're struggling with joshua if you're struggling with job if you're struggling with these passage judges we're going to struggle in judges we can always see it in its original context but we ultimately see it through this this is who god is and he's good he was good at the time of joshua he was giving them what they need and he's good to us amen thank you dear. that's such a beautiful reminder that god is recreating He's doing an incredible work, and that's what he's doing right now. So I love that. Thank you so much for that. Waypoint Church, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, I felt like we just got started, and we're almost at this point in time. We had to end it. So um, We got one question in. We got one question in. One so question. We, <laughs> we didn't even answer the second. We did get the Disney one in. Oh, yeah, true. true. That's, that's very important, too. Um, we love you guys, and we love that you ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to, to seek and to dive. The Bible can take it, God wants to hear it, and we as a church want to do it together with you. So come, ask us questions, let's talk together, let's ponder the things of God together with humility. I love you, Waypoint Church. Have a great day. Have a great week. Take care.